everyone, and welcome to Minute 137 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Stephen J. Rubin, author, screenwriter, producer, documentarian, and overall Great Escape expert. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Steve. Thanks. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, you can call me Mud. Whatever whatever you like, Rob. <laughs> we, we're, we're kin... We're kin folk now that we have shared our love for this classic movie i'll, I'll just call you hilts <laughs> that would be an honor <laughs> by the way when i saw the the tarantino movie and leo DiCaprio, yeah leo dicaprio comes on as as hilts i l- almost fell off my chair and i thought that whole sequence i learned that quentin tarantino is a huge fan he of really the great is. escape so I've heard I think also. it's his top ten of all time. Yeah. Well, if you know how to get in touch with him, I'd love to talk to him about this also. <laughs> well, if you, I'm, if you I'm have connections. I, I met him once in line. It was in 2001. I was going to see The Thin Red Line. And I'm looking down the line, and there's Quentin Tarantino standing by himself in line to see Terry Malick movie. Right. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I do live a little closer to him than you do, since he, he lives in Tel Aviv. But... <laughs> Quentin Tarantino lives in Tel Aviv? Yes. He, he's, married, oh, I no... he's married to Svika Pick's daughter, Donna Pick. And uh, I know that they were here during, during you know, the whole COVID thing. He actually, I, I recall seeing him, he did an interview on one of the talk shows where he basically said that, uh, you know, he doesn't like being, living in foreign countries, but, you know, if you're going to pick a foreign country to be in, you might as well be the, the, the one that, that's the first to beat uh, COVID. So... <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. And what did you think about Leo's performance there? Do you think that that if they were to re- make a remake of it, he would be the perfect actor to cast in that role, or do you believe, like I do, that you could never remake this movie because it's it's near perfect as it is? It is near perfect as there's no way anybody could ever play McQueen. He even Leo, who I love by the way, I love everything he does. Even he looked a little bit like he was like you know kind of mimicking Steve McQueen and. It just, it, it was okay. Steve McQueen's kind of cockiness is very hard to duplicate. And uh, yeah. we could talk for... Especially in this movie. Oh, yeah. We could <laughs> talk for hours out about the, his nuances. And, uh, you know, I know you've talked about it, but the whole idea that Sturgis at one point fired him and was going to replace him with Garner, that Garner was going to take over the whole McQueen role... It sounds completely preposterous to me that this could happen. But indeed, uh, and Relier confirmed that Steve sat out for six weeks. And I just can't believe that everybody went to work every day and he sat in his hotel, in his, 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 uh, you know, his, cab, his cottage cabin, whatever you call it, mm-hmm. and drove around the countryside in his Mercedes and probably got pulled over by the cops at least eight times a week. <laughs> I love that quote, Mr. McQueen, you get the prize. You've, you've driven the fastest of anyone exactly. that we've caught today. Uh, you couldn't slow Steve McQueen down anywhere else. Well, that we know. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he, he did Le Mans in the end. You know, he wanted to, to be able to race it himself, which the rumors are that he, that he actually does a lot of the racing. Uh, well, it is interesting now. that he and Garner both became uh, big racing fans, and both of them did major movies about Grand Prix racing. You know, Garner did Grand Prix, and then um, McQueen did um, did Le Mans. And then, of course, Paul Newman was also Le another Mans. guy who was McQueen was very competitive with, and he was also doing 
you know, racing stuff. So, yeah, it was interesting race cars. There, it, it was interesting at one point. I think I heard that had McQueen been f- truly fired, uh, he was being touted to race for the British racing team. There's, there's a possibility he could have joined Sterling oh, wow. Moss and that whole group and become a professional automobile racer and not miss the beat. I think he loved he loved the adulation of acting, but I think he probably was more passionate about car racing. Is that because he liked to live on the edge, you think? Or was it because, you know, was it just a thrill that, you know, he couldn't get You know, it is a good question. I mean, I wish you and I could sit him down and have a conversation with him and talk about what his passion was. I think he would say that he loves racing, whether it was motorcycles or automobiles. Uh, I think the thrill of action was very important for him. I think he always regretted the fact that he couldn't have done done more of the driving in Bullet, that, you know, uh, buddies did a lot of the driving for insurance purposes. But McQueen lived on the edge because he didn't have much upbringing. You know, he lived had a very troubled younger life. So I don't think he slowed down much, you know. No, not yeah. at all. Not at all. But, I mean, I know that you've, you've interviewed his son. Uh, you interviewed Chad, uh, Chad, Chad McQueen. McQueen. And Chad uh, yeah. says that he was just enjoyed riding fast motorcycles and, uh, unfortunately, later in life, as he got into his 40s, uh, my image of Steve McQueen is sitting in his hot in Malibu smoking dog. I mean, he wasn't moving much. And then he went through that whole period where he grew that big, bushy beard. He was almost un- unrecognizable. And he did that movie, Enemy of the People, uh, based on... Just- yeah, that was terrible. Oh, just just <laughs> a, a depressing, movie. god-awful movie that nobody really wanted to see. Thank God he came back and he did, you know, Towering Inferno, which is like one of my personal favorites of his. And, of course, um, uh, he did the Hunter movie, which I think was his last movie. Um, you know, it's interesting today, yeah. Rob, that they don't make actors like Steve McQueen anymore, not even close. I mean, I would say the closest we have to the swagger, maybe, a, and we saw a little bit of it in the Tarantino movie, was Brad Pitt. I think Brad Pitt has some McQueen qualities to him, mm-hmm. but McQueen is basically his own man. And um, it's interesting, and this is a side discussion, but basically a lot of the actors today are not Americans. The major actors in the world are Brits, Australians, Irish, you know, uh, Welsh. Uh, the training for acting over in uh, New England, you know, in England is a little bit different than it is here. I, I have a tendency to think that we. We produce a lot of pretty boys, and they don't have the grit. And Steve McQueen definitely had the grit because of his upbringing. He wasn't a polished guy at all, but he grew into one of our most magnificent movie stars. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, and what, the iconic portrait of this movie. Of course. <laughs> Completely. All right, well, Minute 137 begins with Cedric continuing his ride through the countryside and goes all the way till we get to see Cedric looking at a train getting ready to depart. So basically this, this entire minute that we're going to be discussing is, is entirely with, uh, is almost entirely, uh, actually it's got Cedric and we, we get a few of the other, uh, escapees along the way. So see, first... uh, Danny and Willie rowing their boat down the river, that mm-hmm. little town that they're about to cross under the bridge. That's Fusen. That's the town. That bridge, which, that, that, that's yeah. interesting because the bridge looks like the bridge right next to the cafe. So exactly. I assume, actually, it is. It is. I can see. I can see the the white pole that's right outside. If you look at the 
the, the frame. So on the right-hand side of, of the bridge, there's that white pillar. Yeah. Which, which appears right outside of the cafe. Wow. That's very interesting. I never, I never noticed that. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Oh, yeah. This, that, that is definitely Fusen. And um, Coburn, of course, is the... It, it, Sturgis told me some interesting things about Seth. Um, as, as Coburn says, he just is so nonchalant and relaxed as the escapee. He's the opposite of everybody else that has, has this running and being chased, etc. Um, there's, there's a moment in the movie, which you've already seen, where he's entering the escape tunnel... And uh, I think Soren says to him, uh, uh, what do you have in there, a piano? <laughs> and yes. uh, says, no, that's very funny, man. You're never going to get this through. Well, in that, we never see what's in that suitcase that... Uh, I've actually heard it. It was a scene that was filmed and cut. It was cut. It's basically, Sturgis told me that inside the suitcase is a pup tent and all these camping gear things. You know, Sedgwick, the manufacturer, has basically created a little survival kit for him, although we never see him pitch a pup tent, although that would have been funny. Um, uh, so, yeah, he's, uh, he's just, he's got it a little bit easy. I think in the book, if I'm not mistaken, his character's kind of patterned on Johnny Dodge, as I recall. Johnny Dodge was one of the guys who did escape and uh, was a bit flamboyant and uh, kind of a bit of a swashbuckler, which is kind of Sedgwick. And Coburn, uh, it's so fun to meet him and hang out and talk to him back in 93 when we did the Great Escape documentary for Showtime. He was just so proud of the film and uh, so complimentary about Sturgis. Well, he, he's worked with him oh, before yeah. and after. Uh, you know, he, he, he liked working with him. I, I, I think you, you might have... Uh misquoted one thing along the way sorry sorry to to, to point this out but uh, I, I, I think an, i think dodge now. dodge was uh, i'm sorry i'm an older guy now so i i'm certainly capable of being misquoted or, or yes, actually no, of misquoting <laughs> right no what i wanted to say was is that, that with 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 sedgwick the he if he was based on dodge who was known as artful dodger right, right? He was actually a cousin to Churchill, and he was let out. He actually didn't. He was caught, and then he was he was sent to a different prison along with three other prisoners. And then they 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 let him go out of goodwill in order to try to appease Churchill at the time. So, so Sedgwick isn't based on him. Sedgwick is actually based on someone named Johnny Travis. Okay, so it was a John. Uh, I had I uh, had dogs. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I know that everyone was a composite of various characters, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. I mean, when when you read the book, you you see some of some of the characters really stand out. By the way, Coburn as being part of these. Coburn, you know, we talk about Steve McQueen being the king of cool. Um, Coburn had a coolness factor of his own. I mean, obviously. Yeah, we we most of us first saw him in Great Escape as excuse me in the Magnificent Seven as Brit the knife fighter, who's uh, mm -hmm. ice water in his veins, and there's a certain coolness about Brit. I think Sedgwick is is a little more of a flamboyant character, but the way he escapes and his coolness under you know as everybody's running everywhere and he's doing the escape kind of coolly, stealing the bicycle. Um, I love that. He's also one of the few. He's also one of the few who actually escapes on his own. Most of them are escaping in pairs. I mean, you have you yeah. have Henley and Blythe. You have Roger and, and Mac. You have Haynes and, and Nimmo. 
demo test uh, that that escaped together. Uh, you actually mentioned something about about that they filmed. You told you told me before we were recording that Haynes his escape was actually filmed. There was there was a point where he got where they filmed that, but it, was, Sturg- it didn't make Sturg- the final cut. Sturgis told me there's a sequence where they're tracking down Haynes. And he races into a gully and gets into a storm drain. And he's hiding out in this storm drain. And then they're coming after him. There's a little bit of action showing him. As you and I have discussed, uh, the most dangerous thing I could possibly think of for an escaped prisoner is to dress up in a German uniform. It's almost yeah, like completely. you have a sign for it on, on your back of your uh, uniform saying, shoot me now because I'm wearing your your." F your, I won't use the word, but your, your blop. You can say it. I'll just bleep it out. It's fine. No, I'll just say your bleep, bleep uniform. So that was a little (laughs) bit dangerous, but it certainly was colorful and it certainly set Haynes apart. And Haynes, of course, has that great moment where McDonald's trips him up, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, know, telling him his accent is very good. Thanks, and whatever. But uh, (laughs) yeah, so they did film that. (laughs) They filmed a few sequences. There's a sequence where McQueen is underneath a German truck siphoning gasoline for his motorcycle, and uh, he's eating... Right, that was in the script. I read that in the script. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know they filmed it. They wow. filmed it, and he's eating one of the rations. Apparently, they, they, they put a lot of effort into creating these little escape rations, which were these little kind of uh, nutritional bars, which apparently tasted like sawdust. So I guess when Queen finishes uh, siphoning off the gasoline... Uh, he takes his little piece of ration and stuffs it into the truck. So that that was one thing I remember telling me about. And um, the, 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 they're, they're, um, I'm trying to think of some other sequences that Sturgis mentioned. They should, but Haynes being chased and McQueen. Uh, oh, the, I mentioned earlier, of course, uh, uh, Sedgwick and his his little pup tent and creating his little little campsite. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean now in in your documentary, the the coolest guy movie ever. So that was narrated by Lawrence uh, Montague, Montaigne, who played Haynes Montaigne. Excuse me, who played uh, Haynes? Yeah, did did he ever have any? Did you? I'm assuming you had conversations with him oh, about yeah, it. Yeah, and I think also. he, did, I think did he, he confirmed that there was a, a more footage shot of him. Um, uh, you know, he's the Canadian in the group. Haynes, the Canadian. Uh, we were delighted to get to him. We interviewed him in Las Vegas. We did the narration track. And we're a terrific mm-hmm. guy, known probably more for Star Trek than for The Great Escape. You know, he... Uh, well, it depends yeah, on who you ask. Of course, of <laughs> course. All right, all right. And did he, did he, do you remember any anything he might have said to you about, you know, the filming? Because he actually passed away before your documentary uh, right, was released. Right, He died shortly after we interviewed him. Uh, he was in Las Vegas. Um, I don't remember him saying anything really that stands out. I think he did say that wherever he went mm-hmm. and they saw the great escape on his resume, he got first-class treatment. Wow. Okay. That's pretty That's pretty amazing. And when when you talked with, with Coburn, did he ever mention anything about the fact about his fake Australian accent? Because <laughs> that's one of the things that a lot of people make a lot of fun of this movie about the, that, you know, his accent is completely, uh, not. Right. Right. No, we, we, we didn't talk. I think one, during the interview, one of the things we don't want to do is piss him off. So I think, but, uh, he, he's, as you see from the interview footage, uh, he's sitting there smoking a cigar in his living room in Beverly Hills. He was in command and, um, 
had some interesting things to say about the film. Uh, and as I said, just big, big, big fan of Sturgis. Obviously, Sturgis got him into the Magnificent Seven, got him into the Great Escape. Um, certainly, high points of his career. So then we get to we get to continue seeing Danny and Willie rowing through the uh, Fusen, as as you pointed out, and then it cuts away, and we we get to see uh, Hiltz riding on his motorcycle. And by the, the way. Speaking As we're watching this, we're also getting into Elmer Bernstein's score. And I have to say that you know, Bernstein's score is obviously a classic, at least as far as I'm concerned. I think as far but as anyone's concerned. <laughs> exactly. And uh, he's his music for Hiltz just soars, just soars. And uh, particularly in this run where he's about to realize that uh, Switzerland is on is you know is up ahead and uh, I love this sequence I can't tell you how many times sitting on my little Schwinn bicycle I would uh, shake the middle of the frame and say that say it to myself Switzerland <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you check on your bike if you have enough gas <laughs> absolutely absolutely I think that uh, I mean it's interesting I don't think there's ever been a role that shot an actor faster into international stardom than Steve McQueen on the motorcycle. If you had to pick an iconic uh, moment in 1960s cinema, perhaps in all cinema, it would have to be this. Because after this movie, uh, he was probably the most sought-after actor in the world. No question about that. I mean, and again, he... You know, he added this this whole sequence with the, with the, the motorcycle throughout. You know, into the movie because it's as we all know it happened in in uh, in during the real escape. But you know, for as much as they tried keeping it out of the movie in the first place, nobody wanted it in the movie. And then you know, he was able to convince them that either you put this in or I'm not doing the movie. So you know, they agreed. They agreed to finally put it on. Well, I first I don't. I don't believe for a second that they didn't want it in the movie. I believe that if you, if first of all, Sturgis knew what he had in McQueen. He knew what what McQueen was capable of. Not dialogue, by the way. McQueen, uh, um, Sturgis, uh, in um, in the Magnificent Seven gave McQueen only a few lines, and he realized that uh, McQueen was such a presence on camera that he could he could give you so much with just a wink. He didn't have to say anything. And in fact, after the Magnificent Seven, I think Steve McQueen started to pay more of attention to the fact that if he didn't like <laughs> the lines, he would just cut them away. And all of his subsequent performances, it is not dialogue-driven right. stuff. He doesn't want to. He doesn't talk that much. Um, so uh, you know, um, he, he's just such a strong presence. And this sequence, uh, particularly coming up here, where he gets into the. Uh, into the checkpoint is one of my favorites in the whole movie. Right now, you, you might know this better than I do. I, I don't know anything about motorcycles, but do you, if you move the bike back and forth to check the the gas, does that help? <laughs> you know, it's like it's gonna be pushing something. You know, into the in, into you know, I, I don't know parts of, of a motorcycle, but it's not. It. I mean, the idea is to see: is it swishing around? Is there still any gas in there? But that's that's not really helping him get a little further. I think it's complete uh, balderdash. I think that it was a good little thing to do. Obviously, he's looking for the swishing of the gasoline, 
but I, I don't know. I don't ride motorcycles. I, I, I find motorcycles scary as hell. Uh, that's why I have such respect for McQueen being able to ride this motorcycle, which, uh, by the way, I, I don't know if you talked about it. It's a Triumph, but they disguised it with uh, BMW features to give it a more of a German feel. Well, but it was so, also uh, it was also it was also a cycle from sixty one or sixty two. Well, obviously not a not a vintage motorcycle. Yeah, just just like his baseball glove, you know. They're, they're, those are more modern things for nineteen sixty two. Right, right. I actually didn't realize that was not a vintage glove. No, I think it was a glove oh. from the fifties, from what I understand. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, so McQueen's on the motorcycle. He's swishing the gasoline. He's saying, he's saying uh, Switzerland, and, and just uh, it's 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 he's a little freaked out. Um, uh, I, then he goes into this checkpoint, uh, and uh, no, well, we don't get him at the checkpoint yet. Oh, we don't get that, him. we're not there yet. Not quite there yet. We're not there we're yet. Cut right, the, but cutting. but what I found interesting is, is we discussed this earlier earlier about the fact that Haynes you know, was dressed in German uniform, which will get you shot. So, you know, Hiltz did the exact same thing. He could easily get shot. And what's interesting is, is that you, at least when you see him here, you can't see if he has a gun. I know that later on we know that he does have a gun. Actually, I think basically he stole a piece from the... Yeah, oh, no, he doesn't. Okay, you can see the holster. It's it's hidden by his his arm through most of the sequence. But, uh, yeah, he has that there. And then we continue along and we, we get to see a train track... And then we get to see Cedric strolling along nicely on his bicycle across the train tracks. Which is a looking nice around. contrast to McQueen is dashing all over the place, you know, being chased. And, you know, he's uh, uh, Cedric's out for a stroll. You know, nice little counterpoint. Exactly. Completely. He looks over at the train, and that's where this minute actually stops. Now, one of the things I wanted to, to mention, and you, you probably know, the uh, in the original script, so the Cedric character is is more connected, more like the character of Cavendish during the escape, where the way he gets caught because he's not one of the, in the original script he's he's not one of the three that that makes it uh, out safely. There's another character named Mary Vale, who I, I I think I mean the fact that you just mentioned right now uh, the contrast between Cedric and Hiltz, where Cedric is strolling along calmly and Hiltz is is riding along at super speed. So I think the, the character Merivale was somewhere in the middle because when, in, in the script, at the point when they are German, when the Gestapo are checking in, he climbs, he goes into the to the bathroom or the washroom and climbs out the window onto the top of the train and then hides on the top of the train as he's going and then ends up jumping off the train at some point along the way. Do, do you have any, I mean, did any discussions that you might have had with Sturgis or anyone else. Did they ever mention this character? Because he, he's mentioned throughout the entire script. And for some reason, he just disappeared. It's a very good question. I think it'd have to stay a mystery, Rob, because I have not heard anything about Maryvale. As I, as I mentioned to you before before our talk, I think that there, uh, Sturgis admitted that they didn't have a finished script when they were shooting the movie. A lot of it was being written as they go. And as far as I know, McQueen's whole sequence where he goes out of the camp to get the maps uh, was written after the fact because he wanted more to do than just sit there bouncing the ball against the cooler wall. I think that's part of the reason McQueen uh, walked off the set and stayed away for six weeks. He thought his character was really underdeveloped. 
He didn't like the fact that James Garner had that turtleneck sweater. Really pissed him off that he had this torn sweatshirt under his bomber jacket. And he felt really underwhelmed by the role. By 62, Steve McQueen had a real sense of what he could do with the character. And I think at that point, and this is before any of the stuff with the motorcycle, the thought of spending the first two hours of the movie just bouncing a ball pretty much really pissed him off. Yeah, but the irony of it is when you think about it, you know, 50, 58, 59 years uh, later, those are some of the most iconic points of this movie. Anyone, anyone, if you ask them, can you recall a movie where a character is bouncing a ball against the wall? Most people are going to say, oh, that was the, the Great Escape. That was Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. And if you say, okay, and what about someone on a bicycle riding through the German countryside and jumping over a fence? You're going to get the same answer. So, I mean, what, what I recall hearing, I think this was, I, I either read it somewhere or I saw it uh, or I listened to it on the commentary. Basically, Sturgis kept telling the way he convinced McQueen not to quit was he basically said to him, just wait, this is, your character is the focal point of this. And when he finally saw the finished cut, he realized that he was right. You know, he is the backbone of the movie because he is the, he's the character who constantly has hope. And he's the one who gives everyone else hope. Garner has an interesting quote, which I use in the documentary, that McQueen told, well, Garner says that McQueen wanted to be the hero, but he didn't want to do anything heroic. (laughs) It was almost like, uh, just kind of an interesting oxymoron. Uh, I think that my sense is that Steve knew this was based on a true story, and he didn't want to um, take away from the actual events. But I think, as Garner says, Garner and Coburn both cornered him one day and basically got him to come back to production. That's what I heard. But it was a combination of things. Uh, Steve McQueen's agent came out from, uh, from L.A. to talk to the production. They brought out another writer to type in a scene where McQueen does agree to go out for the maps, which I don't know if was in the original. Did you notice whether it was in the it original was, script? It was prompt? in the original script, but it was very different. It was... I think it took place right after there, there was apparently like a fire that they had to take uh, that that they had to put out or something like that. It was something that happened on the fly in the middle of the in, in the original script. It, it didn't happen the way it does in the movie, where you have uh, Roger and Mac in the, in you know in the barracks with him trying to convince him. It was it was done very differently. Right, and I think that was written as I believe Ivan Moffat came out from Hollywood. And became one of the fourth or fifth writer on the show to help uh, thread McQueen into. Because if you think about it, most of McQueen is indeed bouncing the ball. The only time he seems to get out is when uh, he's having that conversation with uh, Bartlett and Mac about getting the maps. No, he also seemed uh, carrying the, the the piles of uh, slats, which is one of the most preposterous moments in the movie. Because I, I'd like to know. Where is he going to take that wood? <laughs> what do you mean? They use that wood in order to, to shore up? No, 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 but I don't think he's in the right hut, and he has to go outside with that pile of wood, or how, I'm, I'm just curious where it's going, because it didn't sound like it was in the right hut to do that. But then again, I'm not going to nitpick, because uh, if you start to nitpick, you you, uh, you denigrate the no, movie. No, but that's that what we're doing here. We're, we're nitpicking. <laughs> we're finding, we're finding <laughs> continu- continuity errors as, as much as possible. 
Oh yeah, well there's 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 a few. There, and I I I agree with you. I yeah, agree. That, that that makes part of this uh, so much fun that you get to to you know you can still love the movie, but you can love it even more by by knowing all the small little details that uh, are happening along the way. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So uh, you want to once again tell people how they can get in touch with you. Oh, uh, the best way is through my Facebook pages. I have Steve Rubin Saturday Night at the Movies. I've got the James Bond movie encyclopedia, and then I just have plain old Steve Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. Anybody who writes me a note uh, on, on Facebook, I, I, I I'm, I'm proof of that. <laughs> there you go. Right. And uh, you can contact us by going to our website, thegreatescapeminute.com. Our email address is thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler, and our Twitter account is GreatEscapeMXM. Steve, you want to do another one of these? You want to come back in tomorrow? I am so there. All right. I will see you there. So until tomorrow, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.